0: at Deloitte.com slash US slash Engineering Advantage. Support for this show comes from Wix Studio. Designers and devs, you might be able to do your thing better on Wix Studio, a web platform with everything you need to deliver bespoke sites hyper-efficiently. Design teams get a ton of smart features that can take the grind out of web creation without it costing per-pixel control. Dev teams, you get a zero setup, developer-first environment, combined with an AI code assistant and your preferred IDE for rapid deployment. Search Wix Studio today to explore the full range of features.
1: Hello and welcome to Decoder, I'm Neil Patel, Editor-in-Chief of The Verge, and Decoder is my show about big ideas and other problems. We've got a special episode today. Alex Heath, deputy editor at The Verge and a familiar host for Decoder listeners, is here with David Marcus, the CEO of LightSpark. That's a company that just launched a service to make fast transactions using Bitcoin on something called the Lightning Network. David was previously at PayPal, and then he led Meta's big payments effort that went nowhere. But he's got a lot to say about where crypto and payments are right now. Alex, welcome. Hey. It's good to have you back. Why did LightSpark catch your eye? What did you find interesting about this little startup?
2: Yeah, I don't cover crypto all the time, but I do pay attention to what David Marcus is doing. He is a Bitcoin OG and has been in the space for a long time. And he had quite a journey trying to launch Facebook's cryptocurrency.
1: David was the president of PayPal, and then we should talk about what happened at Facebook just for a second. Facebook wanted to launch a new cryptocurrency called Libra was going to do it with governments around the world and different payment services. And it sort of collapsed under the weight of its political ambitions. And now David is back with a much leaner, simpler startup. Did you talk about the difference between those two ideas? We did.
2: Libra, for people who don't remember, uh, it feels like a blur now. This was in 2019. Facebook was going to do this stablecoin that was David Marcus's brainchild, really. And he led it inside the company. And it met a lot of resistance for several reasons, but mainly, I think, when you talk to people who worked on it, it was because Facebook was doing it. But there were also concerns just about a private company of that size creating a currency, and it was based on a basket of fiat currencies rather than just one pure cryptocurrency. This gets kind of in the weeds, but I think the distinction is important because... David has essentially decided that for his next company, and interestingly, he took a lot of the founding team that made Libra with him at Facebook to LightSpark with him, that it's going to be simpler for him to just build on top of Bitcoin. He chose that instead of all the other cryptocurrencies, layer one networks out there, Ethereum, etc. And I think David, out of pretty much anyone in the industry, knows the most about the regulatory environment around crypto. Because when he was doing Libra, he testified in front of Congress. I remember there was a photo of Zuckerberg's face on the dollar bill with Zuckbucks displayed behind him at <laughs> one point. He had to meet regulators all around the world. They tried incorporating Libra in several different countries, including Switzerland. This is a guy who knows the global regulatory situation around crypto better than anyone so the fact that he decided to make a company that he told me he hopes to be his life's work around bitcoin specifically i thought was interesting
1: yeah that's actually a really interesting part to me we lived through what i would call crypto summer last year where the hype was off the charts there was a lot of conversation about ethereum these other coins I think that is all fallen by the wayside. It's interesting to me that out of all that wreckage, David Marcus is back, and he's saying Bitcoin is it, and it's still viable, and he's managed to raise a bunch of money with that pitch.
2: Yeah, he's raised a lot of money, and the company's pretty lean, but I think his goal is to scale Bitcoin as a payments network. He's a payments guy through and through. I mean, that's what he was doing at PayPal. He led the acquisition of Braintree and Venmo when he was there. And what he was trying to do at Facebook when he was working on Messenger before Libra even had to do with payments. So this has really been his life's work. And he sees the opportunity thanks to this thing called a Layer 2 network, which is this network that sits on top of Bitcoin called Lightning, to let people actually transact using Bitcoin. And the most interesting part of all this uh, is that he thinks people don't even need to know that Bitcoin is the network they're using to transact with because Lightning is that fast. And he actually sees companies using it to settle back into fiat on both sides of the transaction, so legal tender in real time. And I think that's really interesting because he's basically saying, with this network, we can obfuscate crypto out of the equation for the end consumer, and they don't even need to know that they're using it necessarily.
1: That's fascinating. Did you ask him the only question I ever want to ask anybody about Bitcoin, which is, if I have a Bitcoin, why would I ever spend it?
2: Well, that gets to the whole reason he's doing the company, which is uh, he agrees that Bitcoin is in its current state, a bad thing to transact with, right? It fluctuates. The idea with Lightning and the company he's building, which is basically Bitcoin payments in a box for companies, is that it's happening so fast and it's using uh, micro-transactions, so micro-fractions of Bitcoins called Satoshis, (laughs) with this Lightning network, (laughs) of course, um, that you don't even know that Bitcoin is being transacted and it happens so fast that the price fluctuations don't matter he's a really smart guy. He thinks very thoughtfully about this stuff. He's, he's a long-term thinker. He doesn't really buy into the hype waves of uh, the different crypto summers we've had. He's been through many crypto winters. He thinks this <laughs> one, interestingly, will be a very long and painful one, but he's choosing to start a company in the space anyway, really in the middle of it. And he thinks he has the best bet at doing something in a space that's not going to get gunned down by regulators like Libra was. And also just hearing him reflect on going from a big company Facebook, trying to lead a project, basically a startup within that company, which is what Libra was, to actually just running his own startup now. Yeah. And what he enjoys about that and what the trade offs are, I thought was really interesting.
1: I mean, that's pure decoder bait. All right. I'm excited for this one. It's a good conversation. To the moon, Alex Heath with LightSpark CEO David Marcus. Here we go.
2: David Marcus, you're the CEO and co-founder of LightSpark. Welcome to Decoder.
3: Thank you for having me.
2: I first kind of wanted to just table set and talk about the, the crypto industry more broadly. I think it's safe to say we're in a crypto winter, thanks in large part to the collapse of FTX. You've got rising interest rates, a lot of factors in there. I was reading your end of 2022 predictions post, and you predicted that we won't exit this crypto winter this year and probably not in 2024 either Um, and you wrote that quote a lot of value trust and stability was destroyed in 2022 you've been doing this for a really long time and you've lived through multiple crypto winners i'm not sure how many do you know how many Uh,
3: Uh, at
2: least three if not four what's different about this one in your mind versus I, the others?
3: I think that this one is different because the industry got a lot bigger. So the downturn affected many more people, touched more consumers, more companies, um, more investors. Uh, there was a ton more capital deployed in this cycle versus the previous cycles. So it's just bigger.
2: When you think about the opportunity still for crypto, what is it? Especially when you have this much disillusionment. So many retail investors were touched by the collapse of FTX. What is the long term potential
3: for the market still? Well, look, I think that everything that's speculative ends up in booms and bust cycles. It's only if you build something valuable that solves real world problems that you can actually create long standing value. And so I think we're starting uh, on that journey now. Uh, there are a bunch of companies that built things that solve real-world problems, exchanges, wallets, uh, and, and many more. But uh, there was so much speculation and teams that were just building something just for the sake of listing a token and making a quick buck. And I feel like this era is coming to an end if it hasn't ended already. And, uh, and now teams are actually focusing on building valuable things.
2: You left Facebook in December of 2021, which we can get more into around that later. When did you decide that your new company was going to be Bitcoin-focused? Because what you were doing at at Facebook was a stable coin. Why Bitcoin?
3: I kind of had this idea in the back of my mind, but I wasn't sure yet that I was going to just take the plunge and and go with it. Many friends told me you should take at least nine months off. And uh, after months uh, three, I was you know really going crazy so it was time for me to get back on a horse but why bitcoin because i've come to the conclusion that if you want a true open interoperable protocol for money on the internet which is what we're trying to help build here it has to be built on something that literally no one controls bitcoin is the only network and asset that fits the bill when you think about it that way there's no consortium of companies there's no you know people at the helm there's no leader uh, there's, you know, Satoshi Nakamoto, but who knows who they or he or she is. And that's kind of all of the value of the network. It's also the most robust network out there and battle-tested network out there that, you know, has been around for over 13 years and has resisted, you know, all the possible kinds of attacks and issues. So it is, in our mind, the only network that can support a truly open interoperable protocol for money on the internet.
2: And it sounds what you just said, open interoperable protocol, sounds similar to what you were trying to do with Libra. But it's I know what you're doing with Lightspark is different. Why not Bitcoin as the basis for what Libra was? Like why go from the kind of synthetic stablecoin approach to to Bitcoin?
3: So we actually explored Lightning in the early days of uh, of Libra. And we had a lot of back and forth. And Lightning wasn't mature enough uh, at the time. Uh, we're talking you know, early 2018. And the problem with Bitcoin as a, a, a pure play transactional asset, if you don't have a real-time settlement network to move money in real time, is the volatility of Bitcoin itself. Uh, And so it makes it a, a poor medium of exchange. Not everywhere, because you have a number of countries where the volatility of Bitcoin is actually better than the alternative of hyperinflation of their own home currency. You know, at that time, we felt like we needed to try to bring something to the market that had really stable value so that it could become a great medium of exchange, Uh, And if we wanted that at the time, we had to go build something proprietary to actually support it because there was no blockchain that would do at-scale, real-time settlement uh, for potentially hundreds of millions, if not billions of people. What is
2: Lightning for people who are listening and aren't quite sure? Maybe they've heard of it in passing, but aren't sure.
3: So Lightning is a Layer 2 payments protocol built on top of Bitcoin. The concept is basically one of a channel-based payment network. And so you open payment channels between people or entities that want to transact with one another. You basically move beads, for the lack of a better term, from one side to another, and you can do that in real time because those channels are you know, very fast. And then there's a network. So let's say that you and I have a payment channel open and we want to pay someone else, and you have a channel open uh, with that third person, but I don't, I can go through you to actually pay that third person. Uh, so it's a pretty unusual setup, but it's not unfamiliar, as in like networking on the internet uh, looks fairly similar in the sense that you have routers on the internet that route packets. You don't have to be connected directly with anyone and everyone. You can move those packets through third parties, et cetera. So Small unit of Bitcoin on top of Lightning, for us, is a little bit like a TCP IP packet for money.
2: TCPIP, for those who aren't familiar, is the protocol for how information is communicated across the internet. And Lightning, importantly, like Bitcoin, is not controlled by a centralized entity.
3: Correct. It, it runs on top of Bitcoin, so it's completely decentralized. It brings a lot of capabilities to Bitcoin when it comes to payments because it's near real time, so it's really, really fast. It's very cheap, and it's almost infinitely scalable. And it's also private, which, you know, Bitcoin layer one isn't. It basically has all of the attributes of a great open payment network.
2: Mm. Is there any concern with the fact that the protocol is private and that it's not totally visible on chain like Bitcoin uh, in terms of... The decentralization of it over time.
3: No, because you can see the topography of the network. Uh, it, the only thing you can't see is actually who's paying whom, which is kind of a feature when it comes to payments. You don't want sure. if you're a merchant, you don't want your competitors to know exactly how how much you're doing in sales any given day or month. Uh, if you're a consumer, you don't want people to know exactly who you're transacting with at all time. And so, privacy is kind of a feature of all existing payment networks, and you know the same here with Lightning.
2: So you are thinking about Lightning even while you're at Facebook and in, in the early and kind of iterations of coming up with Libra. You leave Facebook at the end of 2021, and you have friends telling you you should take some time. You should not just jump right in. You did anyway. You jumped in. What was the impetus to to jump in and go even after everything you went through at Facebook and you know having to speak in front of Congress, all the scrutiny? What made you go? I'm ready to to do another company.
3: Yeah, that's a good question. I, I feel like I had a deep sense of unfinished business and I think all of us, all of you know, my co-founders here feel exactly the same way because the fact that we're in 2023 and that money moves the same way it moved in the late 60s and 70s on top of completely archaic, outdated systems, is borderline infuriating to me. It's kind of, you know, it's just not right. It's an anomaly in the world. Money should move the same way anything else on the internet moves. You should be able to send money the way you send an email or a text message. We failed trying to do that when we tried the Libra slash DM journey at Facebook. Uh, And, you know, in that time period, everyone else that tried also failed. So we still felt that you know, massive amount of fire and passion to actually go fix that for the world because we feel it's just not right.
2: And what's, I think, also unique about LightSpark and the founding team that you have with you is it's pretty much everyone who worked on Libra with you, almost, at least at the senior level, it seems. What was it like convincing everyone who just went through this with you?
3: Well, it's not everyone, uh, but uh a lot of people. But but look, I feel like we shared that same passion for seeing this through. And when I say this, is actually really trying to help the world with an open interoperable dirt cheap real-time settlement payment protocol. You know, when we started hanging out again, we all felt the same feeling, the same fire to actually go and um, and do this. So it wasn't actually a complicated path to actually form that co founding team that that we have, and everyone felt like you know we still needed to try this. And as far as I'm concerned personally, I've now absolutely decided, and I have like the the purest possible version of clarity on this, that, you know, this is going to be my life's thing. I'm just not going to stop until, you know, I get it done. This is <laughs> it. Like, this is it.
2: So let's go get into LightSpark then. So you recognize Bitcoin and Lightning are what you want to build on. Where is the
3: opportunity to make a company in that space? And, and what is LightSpark? The one downside currently with Lightning is actually that it's very complicated to fully understand the barrier of entry as far as just the learning curve uh, is so incredibly high that it dissuades a lot of people to actually use that network. Additionally, operationally, it's actually very complex to operationalize Lightning because spinning up a node is complicated, but then you need to open channels with other peers on the network to have a well-connected node. And when you do that, when payments actually get routed through your nodes, you need to rebalance the liquidity that is actually locked up in in payment channels. So this concept of payment channels is a little bit foreign for everyone who wants to actually send and receive money across the world 24-7 in real time. The first step is really simplifying all of that, really removing all of the complexity and building an enterprise-grade entry point to Lightning so that developers and platforms around the world can actually tap into all the benefit of a real-time global payment network. So that's what we're doing, and that's what we're launching this week. it's really you know the easiest, fastest way for anyone to actually onboard the Lightning network and send and receive payments in no time. No operational overhead, no high liquidity uh, requirements, none of that. We've taken something that's fairly complex but great when you know how to use it. Into something that's actually really simple, reliable, and enterprise grade. The business model for us is actually quite simple, which is we're providing all these services, and we're taking a small cut of the transactions that actually go through our stack. And you know, it's not dissimilar from um, you know AWS or you know any you know SaaS cloud-based business, which you know brings together software that makes something that's complicated simple and accessible, and charge a small fee for it.
2: What is that fee relative to, I know there's not really competition when it comes to Lightning, but in terms of similar types of companies that exist on other payment rails?
3: Well, so we have a a tiered payment uh, plan, but basically, you know, at scale, we'll basically collect about 15 basis points with no minimum fixed fee. So at a $100 transaction level, that's about half of the cheapest payment systems that typically settle not in real time. You know, take ACH, for instance, settles in three days, is considered to be really cheap. Uh, And that's about half of that for real-time secure payments. We need to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll talk with
2: David about who he envisions LightSpark's customers to be. And we'll get into some of those classic
0: decoder questions. Support for the show comes from the Harvard Business Review, the leading destination for smart management thinkers. You're a business leader, which means you have to deal with several different issues week after week. Look, it can be tough being the one calling the shots, but the Harvard Business Review can be a good place to help lighten the load on your shoulders. There's a lot of great stuff you can find at hbr.org, but for just $10 a month, you can get access to unlimited content, including insider newsletters, case studies, and the HBR mobile app. I had a chance to check out hbr.org, and let me tell you, the articles and case studies are very enlightening. Plus, you'll find podcasts, case studies, videos, newsletters, so much more. While much of Harvard Business Review's content is available for free, after signing up at their site, subscriptions to unlimited content start at only $10 a month. Go to hbr.org subscriptions and enter promo code DECODER right now to take advantage of this great offer. Again, go to hbr.org subscriptions, enter promo code DECODER to learn more about this great opportunity to help manage your career and business.
4: Support for this podcast comes from HIMSS. It can be challenging for men to speak about their health, and whether that's a fear of being vulnerable or just wanting to keep things private, there are just some things we would just rather keep to ourselves. HIMSS knows how you feel, which is why they're looking to provide you the help you need discreetly. Hims is a men's healthcare brand looking to provide simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for men. The entire process is 100% online, so you can get a new routine of improving your overall health in private. If prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and in discreet packaging. No waiting rooms and no pharmacy visits. So while it can be tough to deal with this part of your life, it doesn't mean you have to do it alone. Start your free online visit today at hymns.com slash decoder. That's h i m s dot com slash decoder for your personalized treatment options. HIMS dot com slash decoder. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See HIMS dot com slash decoder for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan.
2: We're back. So, David. Who do you see the customer being for this, maybe now, but also, I think probably more importantly, as you think about company building in the next several years? Who do you see being the companies wanting to plug into this network?
3: So right now, we're really targeting this towards developers, uh, wallets, exchanges, OTC players. But the developers piece is really the most intriguing to us because we feel that you know if you empower developers with great developer tools and you give them the ability to send and receive money and build products and services that can move value around the world on the internet in real time at a really low cost that you can build like crazy new experiences. So a good example of that, of something that we're actually pretty excited about and optimistic about is this concept of streaming money. And let me just take, a minute to explain what streaming money is, right? Because for the last two decades, we've been talking about micropayments as a thing, right? And it never became a thing. And the reason it never became a thing, the current rails and the way that the pricing is set for payments cannot actually support that use case. The attempts that have typically been made require you as a consumer to preload a wallet that is actually not interoperable with other properties or other publishers, and then start spending gradually as you go. So, you know, you don't don't know as a consumer that you want to put $20 in one publisher's wallet and you can't use that balance anywhere else, right? It's not really a micropayment, it's a commitment. And then the way that the pricing is structured has a minimum fee. So if you wanted to do a $0.02 or $0.05 transaction, the actual cost of the transaction would far exceed the actual amount you're trying to send. And so streaming money is this concept that you can actually send, you know, a cent or a fraction of a cent every second if you want on the network between say a consumer wallet and a creator wallet. So let's say that, you know, now this podcast would become a premium podcast where the first 10 minutes are free, But then you have dynamic pricing and the most interesting parts are maybe more expensive and consumers could actually spend cents uh, every second for each segment or every five seconds or every 10 seconds. And that would work globally. It's a concept that we think is very exciting because it could create new monetization opportunity for creators. It could create uh, just new payment models as you go. And we're very excited about you know, what developers are going to build once you remove all of the constraints of all of these legacy payment rails that are around.
2: This is kind of naturally leading us into kind of company process questions. I think, how do you go about selling this product? Do you build a sales team in-house to go out and knock on people's doors, so to speak? Do you just wait and hope that developers see this and flock to it? You're starting the company from scratch. How do you how do you think about that?
3: Well, eventually we'll build a sales team, but right now uh, the sales team is a sales team of you know internal people, me and me included, and you know we're reaching out to companies we know well, and you know we we I think we have a pretty good sense of the real problems that those companies uh, are facing and how we can help them resolve them, address them. And how we can help them build new products that would make them more competitive in pretty competitive landscapes, so I think you know at first it's going to be all internal. you know I mean the company is small, it's a startup which feels amazing <laughs> um, how many employees uh twenty six so it's just perfect, and yeah. so w- we're going to keep it as small for as long as we possibly can, so we're very principled in how we hire. And we just don't want to ever get to this place where we're bloated, so we just want to take it easy with with hiring. but that being said, we're going to launch this product, we're going to get a number of developers and clients on the platform, and then we have a pretty busy roadmap ahead where we're going to continue iterating on the product and and build more capabilities and features in in you know whatever's left of this year. How much money have you raised so we don't really talk about that. It was a fairly substantial round, but like, you know, we feel like you know the reporting I saw was like 175 million.
2: Yeah, ish. you know. Yeah. So, so ballpark correct. So the reason I ask is because I think it speaks to the longevity of what you're hoping to create and also just the resilience of the company itself.
3: I think you know for for me the important thing was how can uh, I structure this in such a way that we can focus on the work and only the work for as long as possible with no or minimal overhead hmm. and uh, and part of the fundraising strategy was that was actually I don't want to be in a world where we're a fundraising every other year uh, because that takes three months uh, out of the year for the senior leadership team. And so I feel like this is a competitive advantage that we can actually focus on the core product and building rather than being distracted. The downside of it, though, is if you're not very cognizant of the fact that you have a lot of resources and you should try to box that, then you become bloated and fat prematurely and you can't ship anything, right? It's like this, this notion that you know, nothing great has ever been shipped by a large team, right? And, uh, and I really believe in that. We're you know, trying to act and behave as if we needed to raise at the end of this year, despite the fact that we don't. Maybe we, if we could like dive into
2: that a little more. How do you think about... Using capital now as a startup founder versus you worked at a large company with a ton of resources before, you have a lot of resources relative to a company, most companies your size, uh, and just connections personally. You, you mentioned like we want to operate as though you know we may need to raise at some point. We don't want to just think that we have unlimited resources. How do you on a day-to-day as a CEO manage that with the team and manage expectations It's culture. It's
3: 100% culture. And at this scale, culture setting is really not hard, right? Because it's 26 people, we're all thinking about things the same way. And, uh, and, And a good measure of a good culture is when you add someone to the team that they felt they've always been here two weeks in. Uh, and so far, 100% of people who joined are exactly that, right? So we feel pretty good about uh, about our culture. And whenever we want to add a software engineer to the team or we want to add anyone on the team, uh, there's a lot of healthy debate. Do we really need that additional role for more than a certain period of time? Is it a permanent function that we need someone to actually look after or not. And I feel like we've we've got the right culture. We're at the time we talk now, uh we're launching a product in in a few days and you know everyone's been working around the clock over the weekend because we're pushing something to production for the first time. And it's just such a great feeling to see people being so hardcore and 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 driven without you having to just ask. It's just natural. So culture is everything at this yeah. scale.
2: And for you as a manager, what's been the biggest surprise, I guess, from going from large big tech or you're president at PayPal before to small company? What's been the most surprising and also maybe the most rewarding in that shift?
3: I mean, first of all, I I don't see myself as a manager. It feels very large company to talk about it that way. <laughs> uh but also, I mean, remember that, like, you know, I did startups for all of my life before this decade in large companies. So it feels right at home. It feels very natural for me. And it feels like, you know, something that's really, you know, in, in my DNA. It feels just right. So it, I mean, I have no surprises whatsoever. It's just, uh, except that I didn't know whether I was going to enjoy the hustle of building something from scratch again uh, with the same level of, fulfillment and happiness etc and I'm actually surprised on the other side of it I've you know I've just never felt this great it's amazing to be with such talented people uh, on our team doing something really meaningful and uh, and no overhead
2: talk about then I know you're only 26 people but how you've structured the company and and the people you brought on and are you are you a functional organization how do you think about scaling the company uh, organizationally?
3: Well, right now we're pretty flat. Uh, so there's not a lot of structure by design. And you know we have very, very senior leaders. So it's not like we need to spend a ton of time talking about how to structure the team. The, the An interesting thing that I've done and tried in the past that works really well is that when I look at the engineering team, the responsibilities are actually split in two. So we have James Everingham, who's you know done so many things in our industry for so many years and he's really focused on the management piece of the engineering team the process or lack of process so to speak so he's really acting in in a way that enables every single engineer to do their best work and not have overhead and then Kevin Hurley our CTO is really deep into tech you know in the engine room Uh, with all of the engineers. So it's kind of a split structure. Uh, On one side, more day-to-day management process stuff, and on the other, really deep into the technical weeds of how do we actually make this protocol become the winning protocol for money on the internet.
2: And are you spending most of your time on products? Or, or is it I'm doing a lot, everything. everything. So it's like yeah.
3: product, it's uh, it's sales, BD partnerships, uh, you know, everything. It's great.
2: Yeah. <laughs> this idea of transacting with Bitcoin is a fascinating one to me, and it's one that the industry has talked about for years. And obviously, we're talking about it with Lightning. I think that the inherent tension in this is that many Bitcoin buyers really still see Bitcoin as an investment. Even though you've got people like Gensler out there saying it's the only crypto I would consider a commodity, doesn't really pass the Howey test, uh, which is maybe that's debatable. But um, you know, it's not. It's not. (laughs) It's really not. But when you have people out there making still, you know, one million dollar coin price predictions, right? It seems like that's a very hard mindset to change for people to think of Bitcoin as more than just a thing you hold on to—the digital gold analogy. So can you kind of unpack that from your perspective and how you think that will shift? Because you're making a huge bet that it will.
3: So let's step back for a minute. First of all, it can't be a really great way to transact if every transaction takes 10, 20 plus minutes to clear and every transaction is actually more expensive than the existing alternatives, right? So that doesn't work. Uh, So in comes lightning, so really dirt cheap transactions, real-time settlement, infinite scalability almost. So that solves that problem. And now when you think about the behavior of people and the way that they think about Bitcoin and transacting with Bitcoin, I feel like you, know, you, you talked about the fact that people think of it as gold. But you know if you go back in history, the way that this happened is basically people were transacting with precious metals and the likes. And then they realized it was actually pretty inconvenient to actually, you know, move around with heavy gold to pay for stuff, and so they came up with banknotes. So banknotes were basically just a paper that said you had the gold stashed somewhere, and that was true until 1972, when you know we stopped the gold pegged uh, dollar. I see Bitcoin to be exactly that, which is today uh, you're actually not. Paying with Bitcoin because, to your point, it's volatile; it moves in price, etc. Just like gold was and still is, right? But if you can actually use fractions of Bitcoin on top of Lightning in real time, and you have liquidity with all of the other fiat currencies that exist in the world, you can build products that are actually denominated in whatever currency you want, right? And so the trend, the underlying transaction uh, and settlement asset is Bitcoin. But what consumers or merchants are exposed to can be whatever currency you want, right? Because you just get in and out of the network the same way that, you know, when you send an image, it gets broken into zeros and ones and sent over a TCP IP network on the internet. You could break down value uh, with, you know, small amounts of Bitcoin transacting and moving on the Lightning network in real time. So, we see it as an, a core infrastructure to move value around. And then our hope is that developers and other players will build services on top of this stack that you know are denominated in whatever currency they choose.
2: So the idea is that the end consumer doesn't even maybe necessarily know that this was settled through the Lightning Network Correct. or Bitcoin. It's all in fiat for the it consumer.
3: Could, it, yep. it could be.
2: Do you see the world trending in denominations in satoshis or sats, which are the smallest units of bitcoins, or staying in fiat, which is legal tender like dollars? Or or do you think that's more of a sector-specific thing?
3: I think there might be really good use cases for native... Sats denominated payments. Um, And so, you know, if you spend time on Noster, Mm -hmm. uh, which is, you know, this decentralized uh, social network.
2: Jack Dorsey's a huge proponent of it. Yeah, it integrates with Lightning. Yeah, Yeah,
3: it integrates with Lightning. And it's kind of fascinating to see the velocity of payments for, you know, Zaps or small payments for tipping, essentially for posts. And you see the growth of the volume of payments on the network with very, very tiny amounts. And I think you know when it comes to you know, publishing or when it comes to content monetization or creator monetization, uh, I think you could see models exist on top of this network that are going to be Sats denominated. Hmm. Because it's kind of the native purest form of payment on the settlement network. Again, we'll see what developers build now that, you know, the barrier of entry in terms of complexity and operational overhead has been completely eliminated. We have to take another break.
2: When we come back, we'll talk about the crypto regulatory environment and whether David thinks any progress is being made.
5: Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact.
0: Eurovision is here. This year's contest gets underway this week in Malmö, Sweden. But this year's contest comes with a dose of controversy. I'll give you one guess
2: as to what people are mad about. Yes, correct. It's that. Organizers of the Eurovision Song Contest say they are assessing whether Israel's
1: entry breaks the rules on political neutrality. I think it's a shame. I think there's no way... that that Israel should be able to participate in Europe. Pro-Palestinian
0: protesters are taking to the Swedish streets. More than a
2: thousand Swedish artists, including Robin, have called for an Israel ban. Some European politicians are joining them. Charlie Harding from Switched on Pop joins us this week on Today Explained to help us figure out if Europe can sing its way out
0: of this situation.
2: We're back. What is the number one uh, concern you hear from a potential customer you're talking to about building on Lightning, building with you?
3: Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. We spent a lot of time engaging with all kinds of potential future customers, and uh, they fall into two categories. One is they have looked into Lightning because, you know, on paper it looks amazing. And then they've spent cycles to actually try to get a well-connected node and try to get transactions moving on the network. Uh, and then they threw the towel because it was too operationally intensive and complicated and they had to have full-time people actually managing their node. So that's one category. The other category is actually, oh, I already am on the Lightning Network, but I have all of these same problems. Wouldn't it be nice to actually not have to deal with all of that stuff so we can focus on our core business, which is definitely not you know managing a node on the Lightning Network? So it's a little bit like, in 2023 if you wanted to actually launch a website where you would have to actually go buy a server hardware and a router and configure the whole thing and put it in a rack and do all of these things like you know no one would do this today right and so the the analogy is basically that now it's going to be as simple as just going to a hosting website and launching your 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 website with all of the what you see is what you get kind of tools right so That's basically the analogy. Like we're going, we're moving from that, you know, rack a server connected to a router era of the Lightning Network to, oh, I go to lightspark.com, I open an account and I'm up and running in minutes.
2: I thought you were going to say maybe like a regulatory concern about using or settling with Bitcoin at all. Does that not really come up?
3: No, I mean, that's one of the advantages also of building on top of Bitcoin, which is that, you know, out of all of the networks and assets out there, and you mentioned that earlier, Uh, it has the greatest regulatory clarity. And and you see it because you see mainstream financial institutions uh, offering Bitcoin products. Like Fidelity is now offering a 401k denominated in Bitcoin and the ability for any Fidelity customer to buy and sell Bitcoin. You can see mainstream uh, financial services companies, well-established brands, uh, carry Bitcoin products for their customers. And you don't see that with other assets and other networks. So, and and that's because there is more regulatory clarity than with any other assets or network. Do you think there's enough, though? Regulatory I think, clarity? I, I mean, look, I think... If you elevate for a minute, you know, and you ask me about the state of the US regulatory clarity for crypto in general, of course we don't have enough regulatory clarity. You know, I've been very vocal about that as well, which is if you want to reap the benefits of this revolution because it is a revolution that will actually benefit consumers and create the next generation of leading companies, and if you want all of that to happen in the U.S., you need to have clear laws and regulations that, on one hand, protect consumers, but on the other, really incentivizes innovation to stay onshore in the U.S. rather than just escape and go to the Bahamas or wherever you wherever you want to go. So I think it's essential. You know, I'm optimistic that we're moving in the right direction. I think you know, right now. Uh, you can see the House Financial Services Committee actually moving in a direction of trying to bring more clarity for digital assets in general. Um, so I think we'll we'll get to a good place, but it's been, I know, very frustrating for many, many players out there uh, to not have a clear uh, set of rules that they can operate around.
2: Do you have any sense of optimism, though, just in seeing what the co- the tenor of the conversation was like when you were at Facebook and you were speaking before Congress in, in DC a lot versus now in the progression? It seems like progression has been made, but maybe only on the edges in terms of...
3: No, I don't com- think we made progress. Think progress. I don't think we made a lot of progress. I think you know people got more educated about like the risks and opportunities, I think, I feel like the education is kind of slanted toward the risks more than mm. uh, you know the opportunities which is kind of unfortunate but no we haven't made that much progress and it's a, it's a problem it's a real problem
2: what do you think is holding that back why are politicians so hawkish on this
3: I mean I think it's a combination of different political undercurrents but at the end of the day I think that the surprising part is that, you know, if you're an elected official, you need to look after the interest of your constituents. So on one hand, it's kind of normal when you see FTX blow up and all these things to try to say, okay, this is like actually really not okay. We need to protect investors and we need to protect consumers from bad actors. The same way that, you know, we've protected consumers from Wall Street bad actors back in the day, right? And now we have a clear set of rules and we're in a good place. I think that the the problem is actually when you don't look at the opportunities to lower the costs for all kinds of financial services and payments on behalf of your constituents, and therefore basically just you know stay very aligned with the status quo when it comes to incumbents controlling everything and, and basically pricing things way too high. And so, you know, with, with payments, notably, we're in a world that looks exactly like, you know, pre-internet era with telecoms, where you used to spend a dollar a minute for an international call and you used to pay 25 cents for text messages. And, you know, we're exactly in that world and we're in 2023. And there's no open competition, right? So, you know, it's a problem. How
2: does progress get made when it seems like what you're saying, it, it's not happening?
3: Well, first, I think that, you know, we could have done without all of the bad actors you know, giving a terrible reputation to the entire industry by their reckless behavior. You know, The problem is also, as an industry, we have to start really building things that solve real-world problems for a lot of people and a lot of companies, and not like, build speculative products that are made to actually get rich really quickly, uh, which you know, obviously is just not the way to build an industry. And I think that the fact that we're in a bear market in a crypto winter is actually good uh, in that way. And that's, you know, you see a lot more energy coming back to Bitcoin when it comes to developer energy with ordinals and all kinds of other developments. Uh, And that wouldn't have happened last year because people would have wanted to issue a token and make money out of this thing. And now actually, you know, building on top of Bitcoin, you're not making money with a new token. You're going to actually make money because you build something of value. And the underlying asset is Bitcoin and you can't actually, you know, jumpstart the the whole value creation, right? You have to go with it. So I think all of these things are going to help uh, change the the temperature and uh, and get us to a good place, but it, I still think it's going to take at least a couple of years.
2: What is the biggest risk to Bitcoin as a currency, as a as a network, in your mind right now?
3: Well, I think you know public opinion is just generally a thing, and I feel like you know when you look at the narrative around energy consumption and all of these things around Bitcoin, I feel like there's a lot of a lot of posturing and not a lot of understanding of how energy generation, storage, and uh, and usage actually works. So I think you know that's one angle where I feel like the narrative doesn't match the reality of energy companies and utility companies, and you know the fact that Bitcoin actually accelerates the adoption of renewables because you can actually build a plant without waiting to have like a ten year lead time to connect it to the grid. And have Bitcoin miners use the energy early on, and then you know amortize basically your investment as an, a renewable energy company until you can connect to the grid. That's one example. Uh, no one talks about that, right? So, so I feel that's one. And I think you know, of course, like you know, the network. You could have said a decade ago that you know this was actually at a risk of being hacked or risk of vulnerabilities, etc. But the, this network has proven to be incredibly resilient over 13 years, so I feel really good about that. It's more of a general trend of the underlying crypto industry that is, you know, problematic for the whole industry rather than Bitcoin itself.
2: Maybe we could end it here just kind of on a big picture thing about Bitcoin itself. We've talked a lot about why it could work as a settlement layer, some of the concerns around regulation. For the average everyday person who has most of their money in their bank, and USD or whatever, and they think of Bitcoin as this thing that you can use uh, on gambling websites or whatever. It's this thing still on the peripheral. What, what do you say to them? Why is Bitcoin something that they should even be thinking about?
3: Well, first, you know, I, I find that it's really hard to explain the reality of the majority of people living on Earth to people here in America because we have it all, right? We have a stable currency. We have a banking system that, you know, for the most part, we can actually feel pretty confident about. We have decently efficient payment systems. Like, it's not like, you know, we go buy a coffee and, you know, we tell ourselves, oh, man, I wish that there was an easier way to pay for this thing. But that's like, it's it's a myopic view of what, you know, the rest of the world uh, experiences. Like in a lot of other countries, people have hyperinflation at insane rates, Which forces them to actually spend everything they have the minute they get their paycheck. Because, like, actually, you know, a bottle of water would retain more value than the banknotes in their pocket over the course of, you know, a couple of days, even. And they can't trust their banking system. So, in those places, actually, the fact that you have a form of uh, value that is not controlled by any group of people is life saving, literally. Uh, and so I think you know you need to put that in perspective, but I think that for us here uh, in most Western countries and uh, other parts of the world that have stable currencies, etc., I think the reality though is you know when we still want to move money around, it's still complicated. When I was running PayPal, we acquired Braintree and Venmo as a package deal, that was maybe 10 years ago and you still can't move money around between Venmo and PayPal and they're part of the same company. The the fact that it's a little bit like you were trapped in Gmail and you could never send an email between Gmail and whatever other domain or Yahoo Mail or whatever it is, right? Uh, And so that's the state of payments today. So when I think about like countries like ours and and other parts of the world, I think about all of the innovation that can come from a truly interoperable really cheap payment protocol on the internet. We talked about streaming money, we talked about moving money around the world in a more seamless way. We talked about people, you know, potentially getting their money way sooner. And as such, uh, you know, really having more opportunities to spend the money they earn. So, you know, there's a lot of innovation that will be unlocked, right? It's like when you think about like, to my analogy with telecoms, you know, it's not like the internet changed the way that people talk on the phone, right? You still talk on the phone. uh, but. Instead of paying a dollar a minute, it's now free. And now if you want like, to do a group video chat with everyone uh, in high definition, you can, and it's amazing, and that is net new. And so I think that when you think about a, a brand new, fully interoperable, open protocol for payments on the internet, I think that we'll see a lot of innovation around how value moves around the world uh, that will benefit everyone, not only people who are uh, not as lucky as we are here in the U.S.
2: All right, David, I think we'll leave it there. Thanks for being on Decoder.
3: Thank you for having me.
1: Thanks again to David Marcus for taking the time to be on Decoder today. Thank you to Alex Heath for hosting this conversation. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. As always, we'd love to hear what you think of the show. You can email us at decoder at theverge.com or hit us up directly. We're at DecoderPod on both Twitter and TikTok. We're having an awful lot of fun on TikTok, actually. Go, go follow that channel. If you like the show, please share it with your friends and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We really like the show, hit us with that five-star review. Decoder is a production of The Verge and part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today's episode was produced by Alex Heath, Hadley Robinson, and Jackie McDermott. It was edited by Kelly Wright. The Decoder music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Our editorial director is Brooke Minters. And our executive producer is Eleanor Donovan. We'll see you next time.